Thank you so much. From, uh, from the end of Easter Day, that incredible celebration, until the day of Pentecost 50 days later, on the church calendar, it's called Eastertide. It's the season of Easter. It isn't one day, it's an entire season. And if there's ever a year when we need to lean into that resurrection hope and lean into that message, it certainly is this year. And the way we're doing that is by looking at the Psalms that are part of the lectionary readings each year, the Psalms of Eastertide. And as you've already seen our guest this morning, today's psalm is the 23rd Psalm. And you may be asking, why the Psalms? For you, it may not have been that book in the Bible that you have really explored yet. And so I share with you these words, these insight from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that incredibly important pastor, <coughs> excuse me, German Lutheran pastor in a very important time in our world. He wrote, uh, whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure vanishes from the Christian church. With its recovery will come unsuspected power. And you may not have thought about reading the Psalms as this source of power. You may not have thought about, wait, wait a minute, these words that at times where it seems like they're very angry and passionate, and at times when they're so honest with God, it makes us a bit uncomfortable with what they are expressing, their hurt and their pain, and at other times just incredible exuberance and, and joy. You may not have thought of that as really a source of power, but haven't you found yourselves at times in grief? Where do you go? I, I go to one of the Psalms and read it. Ha, haven't you found yourself at, at times when you're, you're quite, not quite sure what's coming next or, or how to deal? It's one of the Psalms that comes to you, maybe one that you learned even as you were a child. And so we turn to the 23rd Psalm. And the psalmist invites us to consider two completely separate images that are woven into one, not unusual in the Psalms, two different metaphors. And the first one is that we are sheep. And I have some bad news for you. Sheep are not very smart at all. And they find themselves, they get into trouble all the time and they wander off the path and find themselves lost and they are often in need. And, in this case, the sheep are saying, but let me tell you about my shepherd. This isn't about me. This is about this incredible shepherd that's a part of my life. That's the first metaphor. And in the second half, you'll see that it shifts. And in the second half, imagine that you are a traveler going through dangerous territory and you're frightened and you are afraid. And the image is now quite similar to the first one, that Yahweh is both guardian and protector. So let's begin with that first image of God as shepherd and we as sheep who don't always make the best choices and at times find ourselves in trouble and in need. And that very first verse, the one that we know, the one that we memorized as children, the one that's often quoted in songs as well, it's quite brief and succinct in the Hebrew text. Those, for that first verse, it's two lines in Hebrew, and, and each line only has two separate words. The first one is Yahweh, and the verb is even left out, Yahweh, my shepherd. And the second line is not, do I want. And we feel good about the first one. 
And we get to the second one and we go, but wait a minute, I do want. I think I want. Maybe it's a want and not a need. Is there something missing in my life? Is there something wrong? Is there something not quite there spiritually? What have I missed out on along the way? Americans at one time stocked their imagination with all the same things. Back in the 1950s, 70% of television sets in our country were tuned in to I Love Lucy. I even find that a bit disturbing. 70% of the entire population watching the same show at the same, I love, she's, I know, I love Lucy. Today, when 93% of Americans have access to over 500 channels and networks, the most watched cable news program only has 1% of the population. And how many of you have a smartphone on you how many of you at one point in the worship service already have checked that phone? I know. We are hyper-connected but disconnected. And we have fewer non-virtual friends than at any point in our decade. The median American checks a smartphone every 4.3 minutes. And almost 40% of those 18 to 29 are online every waking moment. We are addicted to distraction. We are parts for genuine community. And we find ourselves today reading the words, the Lord is my shepherd. <sighs> Maybe we need to put a question mark after it. I shall not, I shall not want, but I do. No, no other Psalm, none of, the, none of them say my shepherd, except this one. The Lord is my shepherd. It's our shepherd. It's about community. It's about the nation. It's about all the people of Israel, the people of God. But this is the only time where it shifts and makes it so personal. The only one that says, my shepherd. And you'll notice as you read through this psalm, pronouns are very important. There's no we or us or they. It's my and me and I and he and the very personal you. And maybe that's why it became so important, even in our own nation, with such rugged individualism. There's something about this psalm early on that captured our imagination and our desire to have this kind of personal experience with God, attributed to King David. And I can imagine him, not the young King David, the old King David, sitting isolated, the politician, the ruler, the king, sitting on the throne and remembering. Remembering the sheep, remembering the pastors, remembering the calm days, remembering and longing for the simplicity of what life had been like one time for him and wondering, how do I get there again? The Lord is my shepherd, and it immediately conjures up that kind of personal relationship. And, but also in the Old Testament, we have the image of shepherd that's used as a way of referring to the king, to the sovereign. It's a way of referring to the one that everyone has to answer to. It's the way of referring to the person who directs life for everyone involved in the kingdom. And there's no rival loyalty to the one who goes by the name of king. 
And that's the image of shepherd that's used. There's something even about this image that has political overtones. No competing claims. God is king, God is personal, and God is like the shepherd. And until we trust this shepherd, worry and anxiety will take over our lives. Worry. That's not very helpful even though we are just so good at it. Accomplishes nothing. It never solves anything. It's a useless waste of our time. It can't change the past. It can't predict what's going to happen in the future. And it makes us miserable in the present. And yet we insist on doing it. It's not reasonable. It exaggerates the problems that we're wrestling with or staying awake at night struggling with. It's not healthy. Our bodies aren't really made to do that. We end up with ulcers and headaches and backaches and we come up with phrases like, I'm just worried sick. And he has the audacity to write, because Yahweh, this incredible God that wants, a desire, that wants and desires a relationship with humanity, this incredible God who will not give up on us, this God is my shepherd, so I can't possibly be in need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down in these lush places. The Hebrew verb has a, a causative effect to it. You can translate it this way. He allows me to lie down. There's a 16th century translation that goes like this. He will cause me to repose myself in pasture full of grass. It kind of pulls it all together, doesn't God's in charge, but he's not going to make me do this. this. This shepherd can lead me to the water, and this shepherd can lead me to this place where I can take a deep breath, and I can rest, and I can enjoy safety, but I'm the one who's going to have to do it. We learned this about horses in our life. We learned so much about horses that we never needed to know. But one of the things we learned about horses, if you see a horse that's not standing up, it is two things have happened. That horse is very sick, or that horse feels very comfortable, safe, and secure. That horse is not going to lay down unless that horse feels very safe and secure with what's happening. Which was an amazing scene when we looked out the window one day and saw two horses and a daughter all laying down together which never happened with us. And he can lead you there and wants to lead you there, but he can't make you do it. He's not going to make you drink from that water. He's not going to make you enjoy that scene. He's not going to make you rest. And what images come to mind as you hear those words about the kind of God we are serving and worshiping today? Do you feel affirmed? Or do you wonder what it might really feel like to find rest and recuperation and trust, and peace, and calm, and hope. But what happens when you don't feel that? What happens when this psalm is not describing your life or your relationship with God? It's my pleasure to introduce to you a guest that we have today. And I've invited him to come and to talk a little bit about his life and his experience, not only following God, his life in the pursuit and the work that God has called him to, but also what happens 
when you aren't finding the rest that you want, the rest that you need. Pull you into the light. I want everyone to enjoy your haircut. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm taking my mask off. I hate to suggest Please you do, that. Please <laughs> do. This is Dr. Stephen Lloyd, and thank you for joining us. And would you take just a moment and introduce yourself to our congregation? Just briefly, uh, your background, your training, what it is you're, you're doing, yeah. Sure, well, my name is Stephen Lloyd. Uh, I'm an internal medicine physician and hospitalist by training. Uh, I grew up in Northeast Tennessee, a little town called Jonesboro. I spent about eight years of my life here in Knoxville. I lived in Cedar Bluff. I went to University of Tennessee and graduated there in 1989. And I finished my medical school and residency training in about uh, 2000, I think, 2001. Okay. All right. And then you went, uh, now you did, let's throw this in too. You worked with the Haslam, found, uh, the Haslam administration. They, I did. They I pulled did. you to Nashville, away from East Tennessee. Sorry about that. No, 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 it's all right. Uh, and, and what I did went, you do there? I was the assistant commissioner for substance abuse services for the state of Tennessee under, the, under Governor Haslam's uh, administration. Uh, I was the unofficial opioid czar was my, uh, was my title. I missed being called a czar, but uh, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I did that for, uh, for several years, and, and part of my responsibility was overseer of all the drug treatment programs in the state of Tennessee, uh, as well as prevention mm -hmm. efforts and, and uh, drug courts and veterans drug courts, child safety courts, those type of things. We started, uh, we just started a little emphasis in wanting to bring back our awareness of the opioid crisis and, mm -hmm. and what we can be doing about this. It's touched so many, not just in our community, but in our church. And so uh, let me turn this to you. you it, it's not just that you were the czar. Right. Um, you had your own, um, you had your own valley to walk through. Would you mind? Oh, absolutely. Would you be open about that and share with us your journey with this? Sure. In my last year of residency training, so res medical training is four years of medical school and then a certain amount of residency after that. So in my last year of residency training in internal medicine was in Johnson City, my hometown. I was the chief resident at the VA. And on my way home from work one day, I had what you were describing up here. I had all this turmoil in my life, fear, worry, all these things going on that were, were really, you know, weighing on me, scared of stepping out into practice. and. On my way home from work one day, I uh, had some old um, Norco's, which are hydrocodone, in the glove compartment of my truck from a dental visit, and I opened the glove compartment sitting at a red light and for some reason took half of one, two and a half milligrams, threw it in my mouth, and by the time I got home, all those things had melted away. Right, my worry was better, my fear was better, my depression was better, and it set me on about a three-year journey of where I wound up uh, taking about 500 milligrams of oxycodone and almost eight milligrams of Xanax every day. And I wasn't living underneath a bridge. I was a practicing physician in East Tennessee. I was on faculty and still am on faculty at our medical school, uh, teaching medical residents, pharmacy students, pharmacy residents, taking care of folks just like in this church on a daily basis in the ICU. So uh, uh, on the outside, I looked good, but on the inside, I was dying. And I uh, did that for uh, almost four years. I heard, a, um, I heard a disturbing story about you about a vacation time yeah. would you you're laughing now i'm glad you can laugh about it now I, can. I, I would like for them to know just how bad this was in your life yeah i was i had uh, i had a really wait i had everything i ever wanted in my life the, the neighborhood i lived in when i was a little boy my family used to drive us through that neighborhood at christmas time to see what the rich people's christmas lights look like and i lived in that neighborhood hmm. And uh, at the time, I was using 100 pills a day. So if you got a prescription from your doctor for, for I'm, 90... I'm going to need a minute to, yeah. to, to kind of... 
I know yeah. I think about that, and if I did that right now, just to give the audience some kind of, 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 of reference point, I'd overdose and die. And I was taking that every day. And we were going on vacation to Orange Beach, Alabama with a big group of our friends. We did it for almost 20 years. And, and so I, I need 700 pills right, to get through the week. And I came up with them. And so we head down there. And like any person that, yeah, that it's, I know, it, it's really weird to say it out yeah. loud. Uh, but when I got down there, when you have that many or when I had that many, I just kept taking them. And I ran out on Thursday. And so I knew, now keep in mind, we got there Sunday, and by Thursday, I'd taken 700 oxycodone. Uh, not 700 milligrams, 700 pills. And uh, so I, I knew I needed, I knew I was going to get sick. This story is worse than I thought it was going to be. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I, I spit yeah. it out sometimes, and, and uh, it's hard to imagine that I got there. I get to be here today and, and live this life, and... But I was there, and, and the worst thing about it every morning was waking up and going, how do I get through the day? I, and, and, and going to a pill bottle and counting every single morning was miserable, a miserable way to live my life, but that's where I was stuck. And so I got down there and ran out. I couldn't find any doctors around that I thought would ride it. And, and I'm an East Tennessee boy. I'm sorry. Uh, I just am. I like guns. I got a bunch of them. I ain't never shot anything, but I got them. And uh, um, I had, a, I had a, a gun in my car that day. And I was headed back to our condo, and I pulled in a pharmacy parking lot, a Rite Aid pharmacy, uh, right there on the, on the main drag of the beach in Orange Beach. And I sat there, and I could literally look across the street and see my kids playing on the beach. Heath and Haley were nine and six at the time. And um, I said, I could go in there, and I could write myself a prescription, but the DEA tracks those, so I'd get caught. And so I said, I'm going to rob this pharmacy. Now, I'm on faculty at a medical school. I teach residents and students. I'm, I've got a huge practice back in my hometown in, in Johnson City. And uh, I, laid, I sat in the parking lot with a loaded uh, 45 laid in my lap right there. And I had what's called a moment of clarity. And, and Wade, I'm grateful for that one moment of clarity because that one moment of clarity told me I couldn't recover from that. I had on a great big, I'm, I'm a still a vol to heart. I had a great big University of Tennessee football shirt on with a big power tee, and I'm in South Alabama. They'd have caught me before I got to the edge of the parking lot. You know, and, and so, uh, so I had that moment of clarity and, 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 and put, oh, put the weapon back. And, and I think about it. There, there was recently, in the past few years, there was an armed robbery up in a little town, a little community called Bean Station. And a, a former cop with an opioid addiction walked in and he shot four people point blank range, uh, killed two of them, shot them in the head. The other two sub- somehow miraculously survived. And uh, I think about that because that could have very well been me. And it was very close to being me. Where was your faith? Were you, were you, would you describe yourself as a believer then? I didn't ask. I have, we, have not, we have not talked about these details. Have, right. Have you, because <laughs> uh, I want to know where's your faith in your journey now? Um, was it just on the back shelf then, or? or? I, I grew up in the church, um, and, and it really was a lot of the things that I learned in Sunday school that actually brought me out, um, and I, I strayed from it for a long time. Uh, I felt like if there was a God, he wasn't watching what was going on, okay. and I really didn't want any part of it. And, and then I made the mistake of putting myself in the God chair. And so if there wasn't a God, then, then I'll be God myself. And, uh, and you talk, that doesn't work very well. Um, and, and that's really where I was. At that point, um, I wasn't involved in anything, and, and it was really all about me. Even though I had children, I had my son and my daughter, I had my wife, the things that I told people I cared about, but, but it really didn't matter because if I didn't have this thing out here, 
I was going to die. And I, and I always try to tell people, what would you do to get the thing that you thought you would die without? And I'll tell you, you'll do anything. And I did just about anything. I contemplated robbing a pharmacy. I stole from my father. I made more money in a year than my father did in 10 years. Yet, I was taking from him because I had to have this thing out here. And so, so wait, it, it couldn't have been farther from my, from my field of vision. Let's shift gears for just a moment. Sure. That's not who you are now. No, sir. It's not where no, you no. are. I, I see your shirt. Anything's possible. Yeah. Um, educate us for just a moment. Uh, for the folks, now we have, we have folks here, they have struggled with this with a family member. They know exactly what you're talking about. Right. We have other folks who are absolutely shocked that a medical doctor is saying, I was addicted to opioids and sure. functioning every day. Right. So educate us on what happens to your brain. What, what do we need to know? Well, the, the, if I can leave you all with anything that is, is this, as far as brain function, addiction's not a moral failure. It, it wasn't because I was a bad person or it wasn't any of that. Uh, it was a lot of things that, that led there. And one of these days, hopefully, we can talk about it in, in this form. But what happens in addiction is we lose access to this part of our brain right in the front, the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe of our brain does three things for us. It gives us insight, judgment, and empathy. Now, if I took your frontal lobe today, Larry, and I ripped it out, you'd still, still be alive. You wouldn't have insight, judgment, and empathy, and you're driven solely by your reward center. Think about the decisions you would make if it was all based on pleasure and nothing with regard to empathy, judgment, or insight. And that's really what happens in addiction. So I, I love to take care of pregnant women. It's my favorite thing to do. Uh, women that are injecting drugs and pregnant, I, I just don't think that there's anything better in the world to do than getting the mm -hmm. honor to help those women. And you say, well, how can a woman you know, put drugs in her arm when she has a baby inside of her? And you have to remember, she doesn't have a functioning frontal lobe of her brain. She doesn't have insight, judgment, or empathy. And she has this thing out here that she has to have or she thinks she will die. And so it's expected. Now, I'm not condoning it. I'm saying it's expected. And when I understand that, and I understand the things that I've learned over the past almost 17 years now, uh, then I get it, and I can reach out to them. So it's what you and I were briefly talking about before we got started this morning. The opposite of addiction is not recovery. The opposite of addiction is community and relationship. Here, I look out at this audience right now and, and I don't care what kind of clothes you've got on and I don't care what kind of car you drive. Uh, there's about 20 to 25 people in here right now that have this problem themselves. It may not be prescription pills, but it's alcohol or it's some other addiction, just mm -hmm. by the sheer numbers. 75% of you have been touched by it in your own family. There's somebody sitting out there right now that wants to stand up and go, hey, I'm right here, what do I do? I know, I sat there like that for a number of years. And so that's what happened to me was, was that I had somebody step into my life, met me where I was at, loved me unconditionally, and mm -hmm. introduced me to recovery and introduced me to a God that, that frankly, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what I try to do. The opposite of addiction is not recovery. The opposite of addiction is community and relationship. Where does the solution uh, to the opioid crisis lie? Here? It's here. It's our communities. The thing that I was guilty of for the longest period of time was judging people. You don't look like me. You don't, you don't behave like this. I'm willing to do this for you if you will do this, this, and this. And one of the beautiful things for me that I started to realize about Christ is he didn't put any of those, he didn't put any of those disclaimers on it. Mm -hmm. uh, he met people where they were. And as I started to learn that and I started to get outside of myself, I started to be able to look myself in the mirror again. And I started to be able to get honest. I mean, I sat here with you, and I, I know one person in this audience. 
And, and I told you one of my deepest secrets, which is sitting there with a gun thinking about you know, armed robbing a pharmacy. And I'm completely free in doing that because I know that is not me. And I know that where I am now, that I couldn't have got here without that. You talked about sheep. Sheep wander. And, and sometimes you've got to go to a sheep and you've got, to, you know, you've got to give it guidance to bring it back in. And that's exactly what happened to me. And I had loving people meet me where I am, Wade. And that's why I'm here with you today. Uh, this addiction rewires your brain. Uh, how long does it take? It will, it will correct itself. I hope so. I was in front of our legislature one time, and, and, and one of the legislators, not from Knoxville, but from nearby, he looked at me, and I could tell he wanted to ask the question, Is Dr. Lloyd, are you brain damaged? I knew he wanted to ask it. So uh, the answer to that is, is that it, it does rewire. Uh, it doesn't completely go away. When I sit in front of you today, I still have addictive disease. But I don't, I don't handle things like I used to. So we want to send people away to a 28-day treatment program and have them come back. And okay, you're okay now. Guys, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen with your diabetes, your high blood pressure, or any other health condition that you have. It's a lifelong process. So just to be able to start to think straight again, it takes about three months. So when you bring somebody in and they're making horrible decisions and you're bashing your head against your hand, it's okay. I suit up, I show up, and I meet people where they are no matter what. I had a lady one time, she was in my face, and she says, how many chances does somebody get? And she was mean and nasty. And, and I thought back to Sunday school, <laughs> and I gave her the Jesus answer. Hmm. The Jesus answer was not seven, not 70, but 70 times seven. Jesus' point wasn't 490. His point was many times it takes. And so, so for that brain to come fully back online, it takes two years. So I'm going to continue to suit up and show up as many times as it takes, meeting people no matter what. I want them to run to me, not away from me, boy. Okay. So, and that's the message I would leave. And I want them to know you do still love East Tennessee. Uh, you've, you've helped start a clinic in Cock County now that's doing this very thing. I, and, uh, I did. I, I'm, I'm always the East Tennessee boy, and I'm always a vol. Uh, I, I'm the eternal optimist. I'm waiting for next year. Um, but with that said, I, I am an East Tennessee boy. And, and so when I think about what I see back in Knoxville, Knoxville has always been special to me. And the folks that we had, I think you had my friend Karen Pershing last mm -hmm. week. And you got my friend Jason Goodman Wednesday night. Uh, there's a lot of goodness in our community. Uh, it's going to cause us to be uncomfortable. We, we got to step outside of our comfort zone. And, and I think when we do that, I've been amazed at, at the, at the, at, at the, at the, what I want to say, the churches across the state of Tennessee that have been willing to open their doors up to try to help people back to a path of recovery. And, and so I'm going to continue to do that. I do that for my little clinic in Newport. I wasn't prepared for it. I was used to Nashville, and now I'm in Newport. That's like going it's through Earth different. to Venus, right? Uh, but, uh, but I love it. I love the people there, and I love the community that I'm in. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for what you're doing. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for not giving up on people. Thanks for sharing with us. I appreciate today. it, Wade. Thank you. You bet. You. The second metaphor is, of course, the traveler going through dangerous territory. The Hebrew term, shadow of death. 
a shadowy place. Uh, however you want to translate it, it's not where we want to be. But the image is consistent that God has not abandoned us or left us alone, and it just keeps piling up as we read through this. The image of God preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I was laughing on the front row because in the video, when it got to prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, did you notice it looked like a family that was sitting around like, hmm, I wonder if they realize that the image that they just gave. But, but the image here of this psalm, it's not that things don't happen in life that we don't want to happen. That's never been the promise. The promise is that as sheep, life is very tough, but we have this shepherd who's watching for us and guiding us and protecting us. And in the middle of it, it shifts to even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the shepherd is there, the rod and your staff of what guides me, protects me, comforts me, corrects me, keeps me on course. And even when I'm surrounded by the enemies, I'm not alone. God has not abandoned me. And what is life like? It's like a, a cup that's filled up to the brim and, and just ready to overflow. But it's the last part I want you to hear, that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I have good news for those who are in the valley. Because that last phrase, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, that is the verb, but the verb is strong. It's, it's surely goodness and mercy will pursue me. The image here is God's friendliness and kindness is going to chase you down. God's loving kindness has not given up. Surely goodness and mercy will hound me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Surely goodness and mercy, it will, it will pursue me and grab hold of me and will not let go. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So where are you today? Have you given up? It's Easter tide, my friends. Where are you today struggling with that friend or family member who's still struggling today? It is still the season of Easter and resurrection and hope. Where are you today wondering when this pandemic is going to finally go away and life will be normal? God's friendliness, God's love, God's mercy, God's presence is hounding you and pursuing you and waiting for you. But God won't make you. God won't twist your arm. God loves you too much to do that. Let's pray. And so, Lord, we open our hearts and lives to the incredible goodness you have given to us. Presence in the midst of struggle. Presence in the midst of the darkest valleys. Providing us that place of rest where we find our strength and our hope and we need it again this day So hear us now as we wonder and as we take a risk a chance of saying yes In Christ's name Amen and so we give you an opportunity as we continue to worship this morning. If you've never taken that chance, it's time to stop doing it on your own and give someone else that opportunity as we begin singing and worshiping in just a moment. If we can pray with you, introduce Christ to you, let our folks know about a decision that you have made. We want you to be a part of God's dream for life. Will you please stand as we worship together?